Good morning. If you, you don't have to do it now, but if you look to the back, on the, on the left side of the hall, we have our vision statement, which we believe God has given to us. And beside that is our strategy. So we believe that we're called to be a radiant church in the community of Tunbridge Wells. But in order for us to achieve the vision, we felt that God has given us this, these strategies to gather together, such as this, to grow together, such as what we do in life groups, at the same time to go, um, to go out there for Jesus. Stuart last Sunday spoke about why we go, and the reason for that is compelled by love. So Stuart talks about the going strategy of the church. This morning, I'm going to talk about becoming more like Jesus, which is the growing, pertains to the growing strategy of the church. Now, I am passionate about growth. I know it doesn't show, but I, <laughs> I am passionate. I'm passionate about growth. Just a sign that when Stuart um, made this uh, uh, point last Sunday that love discriminates, when I think about height, man, I've been badly discriminated. <laughs> no, but, you know, God's expression of love might differ from one person to another, but never his measure. God loves me as much as he loves you because the Bible says God does not show favoritism but he expressed it differently. Maybe God knew that if I was told I'm going to be pursuing a career in basketball, not that that's bad, but in my case, maybe that would distract me from, from my calling. But I am passionate about growth, and I just want to share this as well, that before I talk about becoming more like Jesus, I'm not expert. I'm very aware of the disparity of my own spiritual maturity compared to Jesus. So I'm not speaking here as if I'm I know all the answers, but we turn to God. At the same time, we cannot grow by just looking at ourselves. We have to look to Jesus. So the first point I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share is Jesus is the measure of our spiritual growth. You know, when my brothers and I, my older brother, um, and I were, were growing up, which for me that was a long time ago, um, we, we constantly measure our height against each other. You know, we stand back to back, and we measure, we find, you know, where am I, uh, you know, in the, the back of his head, and, you know, as you can tell, you know, needless to say, I always feel disappointed or <laughs> frustrated, but then I have a younger brother, who at that time was still a lot shorter than I am, so in order for me to feel good, I would measure my <laughs> against him. <laughs> now, we may, we may do that with physical growth. We, we can probably measure ourselves, even with with growing in our profession or whatever it is, growing in your skills. You look to other people to measure your, whatever growth you're, you're looking at. But never with spiritual growth. We do not and we must not look to other people to measure our own spiritual growth, no matter how spiritual they are. It's not about becoming more like Stuart or becoming more like Dominic or, oh, God help you. <laughs> Or becoming even, even the apostles. We don't say becoming more like the apostle Paul or becoming more like Peter. Jesus is the measure. Jesus is the only measure of our spiritual growth. That's why Paul said this. We do not dare to classify or compare ourselves to some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. And this is in the context when Paul was being compared with those so-called super apostles in, in Corinth. And then Paul wrote this. 
And I like the idea of becoming. Becoming it speaks about identity because sometimes we get so caught up with, I want to do stuff. I want to do stuff right away to feel spiritual. You know, to define our spirituality by what we do. But it's not about what we do. Although that is important. It's about who we become. For what we do flows from who we are. Author, Christian author, Francis Frangie Payne said this. He, we define ourselves not by what we do for God, but what we become for, to Him. What pleases the Father most is not what proceeds from our hands, but what rises from our hearts. He is seeking the revelation of His Son in us. Remember when Jesus was baptized, and heavens opened, and God spoke, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased, before He even started His ministry. Before he did anything, Jesus knew who he was. And then after that, remember the story? After his baptism, uh, the Holy Spirit led Jesus to the desert to be tempted. And what was the first temptation of, of the devil? If, if you are the Son of God, questioning his identity, then do this. Try to prove your spirituality, who you are. Make it about yourself. Prove who you are. But it's not about what we do, but who we become. It's not even about how well we know the Bible or how many mission trips we've been to or um, how, how long can we go on fasting. It's not about that. Those are, those are very important things, but those are not the measure of our spirituality. In fact, the Bible even said it's not about our giftings. Look at this, what Paul said. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. It's not about what we do. It's not about the external stuff. You know, we live in this world where image is is very high on the list. And often that kind of mentality creeps into our thinking in the church. So the externals. Change must come from the inside out. The Pharisees measure their spirituality on externals. Remember the story of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple? In Luke chapter 18. And this is what the Pharisee said. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If you work in the tax department today, back then the Pharisee would classify you along with with these people. And he said, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. That's how they measure spirituality. Based on externals. But Jesus is the only measure of our spiritual. Are we becoming more like Jesus in character and also in power, in anointing? Because often we polarize these two things. So following on from that thought that change must come from the inside out, I'd like to focus today on three things. Again, I mentioned a while ago, we do not grow by just looking at ourselves. We look to Jesus. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look to Jesus in three 
three areas of life. First is becoming more like Jesus in the way we think. So the three areas is becoming more like Jesus in thought, in word, in deed. Paul says in Romans 12 too, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. According to this passage, our thought life is key to transformation. But how many of you spend a lot of time investing in what you think, thinking about what you think? Paul says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. How many of you have done that? How many of you have, um, like, you know, when you're, whatever, when you're working or when you're just walking somewhere, you're not doing anything, and, and suddenly your, your thoughts just drift. You're not even thinking about what you're thinking. And then suddenly you begin to think about things that are not in line with God's character. How many of you are like, oh, I'm not going to think of that because I would like to make this thought obedient to Christ? Now, the language that Paul uses here is a military language. It's actually a warfare. It takes a lot of effort. It's oftentimes we don't think about what we think. We just let, let our thoughts drift. So think if our thought life is key to transformation, it's important that we do think about what we think. But then we ask the question, what is Christ-like thinking? What is Christ-like thinking? If you want to make it obedient to Christ, what is Christ-like thinking? Today I've listed four things in my study about Christ-like thinking. Number one, it is set on things above, not on earthly things. Paul says, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Let me, let me just explain. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore, do not worry. What happens when you worry? You think about the thing that you worry. Your mind is preoccupied by the very thing you worried about. And Jesus said, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or your body, what you will wear. I'm going to pause there. If Jesus said, do not worry about the car that you drive, or the school that you go to, or the place where you go to on holiday... Now, I would understand that because those are the non-essential things in life. We shouldn't worry about those things. But no, Jesus talked about the basic necessities of life, food, water, clothing. Do not worry about these things. But if you really come to think of it, if we can trust God with the basic necessities of life, how much more can we trust Him with the non-essential things in life? If I'm not worried about food, water, and clothing, which sometimes I worry about food. <laughs> I can tell my wife, I can ask my wife. You know, if you worry about food, if you, can, if you can trust God with those essential things in life, then it's easy for us to trust God with the non-essential things in life. And then he goes on, it's not life more important than food or your body, more important than clothing. It says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And he asks a rhetorical question. Are you not 
much more valuable than they. And then he said, do not worry about the clothing. Look at the, 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 the lilies in the fields of how they grow. They do not labor or spin. And he said, yet not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Therefore, do not worry by saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Verse 32. For the pagans run after these things. And the word run there is like they're, they're preoccupied with these things. Things in this world. In fact, the word is desire, clamor. The pagans run after these things. And then it says, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And then contrast it in verse 33. Jesus said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, lift your eyes, lift your thoughts above these things. Lift your thoughts above the things in this world, food, water, clothing. Lift your eyes above and look to his kingdom. And and he said, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, to be honest, I want to be honest with you guys. When I look at this verse, and I was looking at some, some pictures and websites about what was going on in Syria and the refugees, I struggle in my spirit. God, I, I, I worry for them. But again, the challenge is God operates in a different reality. Often his word doesn't match with our reality. That's why it says live by faith and not by sight. And we still declare God is Lord over them. God is Lord over them. So the first characteristic, it, it is... It's set on things above, not on earthly things. Number, number, sec, number two, it is set on what the Spirit desires. Paul said this in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Whenever the Bible talks about the flesh, it talks about the sinful nature of man. Now, what does this mean? There are situations in life when you know, you, you, everything in your flesh just screams at you to want you to say something or to do something. For example, if you're queuing, if you're queuing for hours and somebody cuts in, everything in you is like, oh, no, that's my place. Or you're hungry, and then when you come home, there's no food from work. Or um, you're, you're really struggling something, and then uh, your wife says something that, you know, it's just about, not necessarily a criticism, but a challenge. And like, <sighs> not now. Everything in your flesh just wants to respond and retaliate and react. But then those are the moments when I said, God, what does your spirit want me to do? What is, the, what is the desire of the spirit? The mind of Christ sets, is set on what the spirit desires. Always operate against that human nature, against that selfish nature. Number three, it is set on the purposes of God. Now, this is a bit tricky because we can think good thoughts but may not be necessarily in line with the purposes of God. Remember the story of Jesus calling his disciples. And uh, Jesus told them about what, he, what was going to happen to him. He was going to be crucified. And this is the story. 
From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord. He said, this shall not, never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now come to think of it. If you have been with Jesus, if you've been with your leader, and you love your leader, you're part of that special three you know, of the disciples. And you're so looking up to him, and, uh, and, and you want him to do well. And Jesus suddenly began, your leader suddenly began talking about him being crucified. Out of the goodness of your own heart, you would say, no, of course not. Especially if it's your friend, right? It's a good thing. But it's not in line with the purposes of God. In fact, that very good thought was actually a stumbling block to Jesus. So God's or Christ-like thinking is not only set on things above, it's not only set on what the Spirit desires, it is also set on the purpose of God. There are good things that are not necessarily God things. And we need to discern, Lord, which, what do you want me to do? Which, which is in line with your purpose? And lastly, it is set on serving others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus always focuses on others, just serving others. He did not use his nature as God for his own advantage. In fact, he used that to serve others, to bless others. Those are Christ-like Thinking, becoming like Jesus in our thought, in the way we think. Second, becoming more like Jesus in the way we talk. Now, why, why this? Why words? Because our words are indicators of the condition of our heart. David says, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. If your heart is full of fear, you will speak fear. If your heart is full of disappointment, you will speak disappointment. Now it may not be obvious because we have been we have become expert in tailoring our words so that it doesn't show what's in our heart. But, but communication is so much more than using words. When my wife is upset with me, she doesn't even need to say anything. Just by looking at her eyebrows, I can tell. <laughs> when those eyebrows get an angle and there's a little bit of wrinkle here, okay, <laughs> I can tell. The words are indications of what's going on in our heart. But not only that, the Bible uses the word tongue or lips as a symbol of the use of our words in our talking. So it's important to talk, to, to talk about becoming more like Jesus in the way we talk. It's because the tongue is also an indicator of how much God is in control of our lives. 
Now, now take note of this. James said, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of, full of deadly poison. Wow. No human being can tame the tongue, no matter how good they are. There's a prophet in the Old Testament, and probably during his time, he was the most righteous, or probably one of the most righteous of, in his time. And he was a prophet, Isaiah. First five chapters, he was pronouncing woes against the Israel, against his own nation because of the wickedness, of the evil that he had seen. But in chapter 6, when he encountered the Lord, Isaiah 6, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now, of course, Isaiah wasn't talking about there's a crump in his lips or milk mustache or whatever. No, it's, it's the use of his words. Why? Because unclean lips meaning to say unclean heart. Now, come to think of it, why did Isaiah use that? Why not, woe to me for I'm a man of unclean thoughts or unclean actions. That means words are very, very important. But James did not say the tongue is untamable. He only said no human being can tame the tongue. No power inherent to human being, no human ability could control the tongue. But God can. Remember the story when after Jesus ascended to heaven, and the disciples were gathered in Jerusalem to wait on the promised Holy Spirit. And the, promised Holy, the, the Holy Spirit came upon them powerfully. And you know what was the first manifestation of the Spirit's power? They started speaking in different languages, declaring the goodness of God. Now I was thinking, of all the possible manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power, why speaking in different languages? Why speaking in tongues? It's as if God is saying, no, you may not be able to control your tongue, but I can. So the tongue is a good indicator of how much God is in control of our lives. The more we become like Jesus, the more we speak like him. But what is Christ like talking? Then we ask ourselves, what is Jesus full of, right? The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who, be, who, from the Father, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. That means Jesus' words are full of grace. Sermon of the Mount, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. I mean to say, you're not feeling righteous, you're not feeling holy. But Jesus said, blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. If you're feeling confident in your own righteousness, no, the kingdom of God is not for you. But blessed are you who's feeling the need for God, because yours is the kingdom of God. Paul says, let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. When Jesus speaks, there's always a sense that I am accepted. Even though the things that he speaks are uncomfortable. Because gracious words does not necessarily mean nice words. Number two, Jesus' words are full of truth. 
full of truth, and sometimes it's uncomfortable. The reason why it's uncomfortable is because we're so used in, in believing the lie that when Jesus just presents the truth, we can't, we can't take it. But Jesus' words are full of truth, and that's why Jesus' words set us, sets us free. Paul said, Therefore, each of you must put a falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Imagine if you all, like, if you all speak like, talk like Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. And then lastly, Jesus' words are full of spirit and life. Jesus said, The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Whenever Jesus speaks, it's for giving life to others. It's for building others up. It's not for tearing others down. Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That means I have to have full of grace, full of truth, and full of life in my heart so that I can speak those things out. I can build others, because whatever I say actually affects the people around me. The things that come out of my mouth affects the people around me. Lastly, becoming more like Jesus in our actions. Take note of this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Jesus connected giving our material possessions to the first part, which is laying down your life. Whenever I read that verse, I, I think about Jesus' crucifixion. But no, Jesus had been laying down his life from the very beginning of his ministry. The crucifixion is only the culmination of that laying down of his life. So he served others. He washed his disciples' feet. He healed others. So Jesus' actions are always based on love. We heard about this last Sunday. Let us not love with words, but also in actions and in truth. Jesus' actions are sacrificial. We ought to lay down our lives for others. Jesus' actions are in line with the truth. I can, always, I can imagine Jesus within his being in perfect harmony. His soul, his, his mind, his will, emotion is so in perfect harmony that whatever, whatever you see, it's just that's him. And for us, sometimes there's a disconnection between our external world and our internal world. Whatever you see on the outside may not be necessarily in line with what's going on inside my heart, inside my mind. We try to do good things, but sometimes the good things actually in deep in our hearts is not necessarily in line with that. But in Jesus, Jesus' actions are always in line with truth. Lastly, how do we become more like Jesus? Now, I'll be careful here. Because the first part is there are no formulas in a relationship. I'm not going to tell you, read five chapters a day, wake up five in the morning, pray. All those things are good, but there are no formulas in relationship. But you rely on God's promise. The good thing about this is that God promised us that he will be involved in the lifelong process of becoming like Jesus. He said, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So trust him. 
Be patient with yourselves. Number three, which is in line with number two. Celebrate what God has already done in your life. Oftentimes, we're so focused upon, oh, I'm not that patient yet. Oh, I'm not that, I'm not that good yet. But God has already done so much, so many things in your life. Celebrate that. Be thankful. But not only celebrate what God has done in our lives, but also celebrate what God has done in other people's lives. When you see other people becoming more like Jesus, more mature, celebrate. You know, oh, I wish I'm like him, more patient, more holy, whatever it is. But that, that means we go back to the first point. We compare ourselves. Celebrate, because the moment we celebrate, we're just thankful. I know, God, you're not done with me yet. When Billy Graham's wife um, died, you know what she wrote in, on her epitaph? It says, the end of construction. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> Great, huh? Number four, persevere in trials. The Bible says that when we, are, when we are going through trials, these very trials can make us more mature, more like Jesus. James said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Matthew 13, when Jesus talked about the parable of the sower, and basically the story is that he's a man sowing seeds to four kinds of soil. But I'm not going to go through them. I'm going to just talk about the second soil, which is the rocky soil. The rocky soil, the seed came into the soil. The, the, the plant grew quickly because the, the soil was shallow, but it has no roots. Jesus said when the sun rose up, which according to Jesus symbolizes the trials and persecutions, it basically scorched the plant. And, and wither the plant. Interesting because the same sun that killed the shallow plant, or plant that grew in the shallow soil, is needed for the growth of the plants planted really deep into the good soil. Someone said, the, deep, the, the deepest need of the soil is not the soul, is not intelligence, not talent, not even excitement but just depth. And a shallow soul is someone who can't go beyond himself. And who could be deeper than God? Our soul are meant to be connected to God, are meant to be planted deep in God, so that whenever trials and persecution comes, we don't easily waver in our faith. This is a, this is a statement that God in my heart when I was going through trial and he told me the sea does not have to be calm for you to walk on it and I was concentrating so many things on what's going on around me and says Dominic the sun does not have the sea does not have to be calm for you to walk on it we can spend our energy trying to calm the sea which is futile just look to Jesus guard your heart lastly Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Remember the story, the parable of the, of the sower? What, the quality of our hearts determine the speed of our, spiritual, of our growth. Now, God will always work on us. God will always be faithful 
in making us more like Jesus. But we have a responsibility, and that is to respond to him. And our response to him will be determined by the condition of our hearts. If our hearts are like any of the three soils, hard, shallow, or cluttered, it's hard to grow spiritually. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.